Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the Son of Man. Find yourself a Bible. We'll turn to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be shifting some major gears in Daniel, uh, not because necessarily we want to, just because that is what Daniel does. Daniel, the book of Daniel is divided almost exactly in half. Um, from, hold on, I've got a little problem. There we go. Almost exactly in half. So you have the first six chapters, which are effectively um, narrative with a little bit of prophecy. And then the remaining six chapters, chapter 6 through 12, are the exact opposite of that. Almost 100% prophecy and very little narrative. And so some people love the front half, some people love the back half, some people like me, I like both halves. You just have to adjust yourself. You can't expect one to be the other. And you have to totally change the way you think. So it's sort of a continental divide. One goes one way, one goes the other way. And so we're heading off into a book, part of Daniel with it that, that is, um, well, lack of a better term, it's just weird. Uh, it's not a narrative. We can follow narratives. We follow life's, you know, even though amazing things that Daniel did, God did through him. Uh, but this, this part of Daniel, which is basically prophecy, is sort of the, uh, well, not sort of, it's very, it's, it's, it can be a very strange thing. Prophecy is a very pivotal part. A lot of people are afraid of prophecy in the scriptures. A very pivotal part of scripture. And the reason for it is, very simply, is that it stands as the most important means of verification of scripture. How do we know this is actually the Bible that God inspired it? Well, there's a lot of Bibles out there. There's a lot of um, uh, religious writings. Muslims have them. Christians, of course, have them. Uh, Hindus have them. Buddhists have them. Mormons have them. They all have them. Some of them are as old as the Bible. So how do we how do we, do we throw them up in the air and whichever one lands you know I had a professor in college I didn't actually didn't have this professor a friend of mine had it and he didn't like to grade term papers he he made them write term papers the way he would grade term papers he would go to the steps of the of the building that he was in and he would with a with a pile of term papers hand throw them down the steps and the ones that went the furthest were the A's and then the next ones were the B's and the I'm not kidding so. We just got a, we got a bigger book than they do, so therefore we're better than them or whatever, or ours is older, I don't know, you know, all this stuff. And all these religious writings contain moral teachings. Some of you may not consider to be moral, you know, like a Muslims, you know, you kill yourself, kill other people, but nonetheless, it's, it is a moral for them. Uh, all speak of the afterlife, all speak of predictions concerning the future. It's sort of apples to apples in some ways when you consider if it's just our rules against their rules, if that's all it is, then who's to say one is better than the other, per se. Uh, in the area, though, when we get to the issue of prophecy, in, partic in particular prophecy in the sense of predicting the future, is where the Bible leaves all other religious writings completely in the dust. A lot of other religious writings, especially the Muslims, have tremendous writings about end times events. None of them have come true. Uh, Nostradamus, anybody familiar with him? You ever read his stuff? Uh, have you ever read a person that on crack writing stuff? It's the same. It's exactly the same. I don't know where he got the crack from back then, but he was smoking it for sure. Because it's just as if he gathered a bunch of words together and just flung them onto a piece of paper. Because they can say, and the reason why Nostradamus can predict things is because you read his stuff, he's like, well, this could be anything. I mean, it's just all over the place. And uh, not in any way... Can you compare it to the scriptures, which are straightforward, uh, which, if handled correctly and follow the rules, are very clear? Uh, Nostradamus, there is no rules there. Uh, again, the, the Bible is most singly verified through fulfilled scripture. You put yourself out there when you make a prediction, don't you? 
This time next year, this is going to happen. And you announce it to a bunch of people, and then it doesn't come true, and then they never believe you again for all the right reasons, right? The Bible does that consistently, not just about next year, but about next century, next decade, next millennia, next whatever, and has so far been 100% accurate. Like I said, you put yourself out there. A lot of these religious writings don't make predictions because because they know it's contrived and they came up with it. And so the best way to keep, keep people underneath your thumb is to not make anything that they can verify, like Nostradamus. Just throw it all in there and make it where you can't predict it. You can't really say it says it, and you can't really say it doesn't say it, and so you leave it that way. The Bible just comes out and says stuff real flat, real plain, and 100% of it has been fulfilled thus far. So the reason... Again, there's other ways to verify the Bible. Archaeologically, uh, you can dig up stuff and find out the Bible has never been disproven by a single archaeological uh, find, never been disproven by a single historical reference. The Bible is always tracked exactly with all the correct history that we know and the correct archaeology. No, there's not been a single thing that's disproven it. But again, the single most important verification scriptures are not archaeology and not history. It is the full, it's in the area of fulfilled prophecy, as in the case of Daniel, the remaining six chapters. Uh, the reason... For this is because only God can do what the Bible does. Only God can take, make a prediction, taking into account innumerable, almost infinite number of human contingencies, all these peoples doing all this stuff, take into account all these things, and be 100% accurate about how the outcome is going to be. Who does that? Only God does. And you will only find that characteristic in the Bible. You will not find it in any other religious writing, bar none. It does not exist. Do your homework, but, uh, but you can trust what I'm telling you. Why, why do we study the Bible and obey the Bible exclusively? Because it is the only book that demonstrates itself to be of divine origin. No other one does. You get into them very deep, and it's very clear that somebody, and only somebody, wrote this. Was the Bible written by men? Yes, it was. But again, it demonstrates that the author, the mind behind it, was not that of men. The writer's like Daniel, awesome guy, sinner just like the rest of us, had his own issues. Everybody else writing the Bible had all kinds of issues. I mean, you read that, you're just like, these are real people. Yeah, they are, and the Bible does no, and no, no way intends to hide their background or anything that they've done. As you got Mohammed, for instance, in the book of Quran, who's, he's awesome all the time. No matter what he does, he's awesome. It's like, no, he's not. Look at history. The guy, his first wife was, I think, 11, but the time he slept with her, don't listen to that, kids. He married her when he, she was eight, and he didn't, didn't have relations with her until she was 11 because that was the proper thing to do, for crying out loud. That's his history. What a nice guy. But no way indicates that in, in his writings because he wrote it. The scriptures, on the other hand, shows us guys and people that are messed up and in, in no way intends to hide those things because it, it, it wants you to understand that the author behind this is not men, but God. And the best way to verify that? Fulfill prophecy. So you need to know what prophecy says, don't you? Yes, indeed you do. Why do we study the Bible? Again, it demonstrates, exclusively demonstrates itself to be of divine origin. If the Bible is accurate when it speaks to the future of nations and millions of contingencies of human, human things, then, then how, can it not be accurate in the smallest things? Tell, tell me in your personal life what 100% of what's going to happen tomorrow. Tell me right now, we're going to write out a sheet, and then you're going to come back here this time tomorrow, and we're going to find out whether it actually came true or not. From here, from here till 24 hours from now, will it be 100% accurate? You're just guessing because you don't know. The writers of those other texts are doing the same thing. 
On the other hand, you have a Bible that not only writes about individuals, but writes about nations and peoples and all kinds of stuff. It's 100% accurate. Who does that kind of thing? Only God. Only God. That's the reason why we study and obey the scriptures exclusively. Daniel 7 is pure prophecy. Especially with regards to when Daniel wrote this. When he writes this, beginning in chapter, verse 1, chapter 7, he writes it from the perspective of everything is ahead of him that he writes about. Everything is future. Where we sit today, 2,500 years later, 2,500 years of this stuff that he wrote about is taking place. So we have, a, we, have, we have an analysis. We can sit now halfway through this prophecy and look back over Daniel and we can say, was Daniel smoking crack or was he listening to God? And we find out that Daniel was definitely listening to God because Daniel couldn't do this stuff. Daniel can't be this kind of, how could, he couldn't, we can't even, he couldn't tell you what his tomorrow was either, and yet he predicts 2,500 years. So it, we, we get this trajectory, if you will, of prophecy for the first seven verses. This trajectory that's going to take us to the next 30 or 40 verses in this chapter that tells us, as the trajectory was for the first seven verses, so it's going to be for the remainder of this chapter, he's going to be 100% accurate. Because he's been 100% accurate thus far. So he predicts these four world-dominating kingdoms that are going to arise uh, before the second coming of Christ. And these things, like I said, these become scary things. And just in case if you're, if you're not miffed enough, I'm going to put that on the screen for you. How about that? Isn't that awesome and completely informative? Now you're perfectly clear we can all go home, right? Daniel chapter 2 is the image on the left-hand side. He interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a statue. If you were not here for that sermon, I would recommend it to you. It's on our website. It's also on our YouTube channel called The Sweep of History. There's a lot of good information in there, important information that I'm not going to go over again because it's a lot of stuff. But these, this statue made of four different types of metals is going to track exactly with Daniel 7, which instead of metals is going to give us the same kingdoms in the same order but they're going to be pictured as these animals, starting with this lion with wings, and then the bear with the ribs in its mouth, and then the four-headed uh, leopard with, four set, with two sets of wings, and then this indescribable beast that has ten horns, and three of them are uprooted by a single horn that becomes this thing over here that we otherwise know as the Antichrist, which we're going to be talking about next Sunday. So I'm going to, there, there it is. I'm going to take it off for you because, see, you, you won't listen to me if I leave that stuff up there. See, I know how y'all are. There's a cool thing, a graphic to look at, so we don't have to pay attention to Pastor Bill. So this is where we are today. And uh, we're in the place 2,500 years later, under the dominion of the fourth kingdom. Again, I'm, you're going to need to listen to the last sermon, that sermon several weeks ago to understand what all that means necessarily. This fourth and final kingdom has a phase one, which is already concluded, and a phase two that we are awaiting. And that phase two is going to be brought about, ultimately culminated by a guy that we know as the Antichrist, if you know, if, if you heard that name in the New Testament, we're going to be talking about it next time, talk about the number 666 and all that stuff, and what does that all mean, and how can we know that Obama's not the Antichrist, and that, you know, all that stuff. How do we know when it's the Antichrist? When it's the Antichrist, that's how we know. <laughs> so, sorry to be that way, but that's true. So, after verse 7, we are, along with Daniel, looking into the future, even today. So beginning at the end of verse 7, verse 8 on, we have future. It was future for Daniel. It's future for us still. And again, the trajectory of Daniel, he's, he's gone over 2,500 years of history, and he's been 100% accurate. So the remainder of Daniel, by the way, the remainder of Daniel 7 only covers maybe 30, 40 years. So if he, if he got it good for 2,500 years, what's the chance of him getting good for 30 years? I'm, I'm, I'm betting on Daniel. Actually, I'm betting on the Lord because uh, I know the Lord inspired this text. 
Again, this trajectory tells us where, where we're going. So a lot of people don't like prophecy because it's intimidating nature. Uh, there's not everything single prediction. I mean, there's, there's stuff that's not straightforward here. Uh, rendering into signs and symbols to a large extent. How do I understand these things? I understand plain English, but this stuff, symbols and signs and things like that, are, are harder to interpret, and they are. Uh, another reason prophecy is not liked is because of the sheer enormity of it. Uh, Christ comes the first time 2,000 years ago, and there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that he fulfilled 100% of, by the way. 300 prophecies that were made as far back as 2,000 years before him coming to the earth. These prophecies were made. He fulfilled them to the T, more than 300 of them. What's the chances of that? There's no chance of that. None. Run the numbers on it. You, there's no, I mean, you've got a better chance of winning the lottery every day than that happening to one person fulfilling all these things. But again, like I said, run, run the numbers on it. But for every prophecy in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming, as important as, in a, as, as essential as that is, Jesus coming and being born of a virgin and dying for our sins because there was no other way, and us, uh, our ability to be able to be made right with God through faith in Christ, that, that is as essential as that, that is, there were only 300-some-odd prophecies in the Old Testament of, of that first coming. So let me help you understand about his second coming. For every single prophecy of Christ's first coming in the Old Testament, there are eight predictions of his second coming. So if you want to weigh them, the weightiest thing as far as God who inspires the text is the second coming. And we're going to be looking at the reasons why for that uh, today uh, in just a bit. But so the sheer enormity of this, this, this prophecy of understanding these things, and like I said, many of them are rendered into signs, and they seem to be hard, and they are harder to understand than just plain straight out, tell us how it's going to go, stuff. So, so a lot of times our reason for we, 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 we feel like we can't get into this prophecy issue because we feel like we can't interpret it. I'm not capable of it. And I would say, yes, definitely you're not. Neither am I. You're not capable of it. Nonetheless, we say, well, therefore, there's, we're, in, we're incapable, therefore, as humanity to come to the conclu correct conclusions. And I would say, I disagree with you. And let, me, let me put it to you in the form of questions. F follow me on this. If you know your Bible, I hope you do. Do you believe that the Bible is inspired by God? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that the Bible, God inspired it instead not to confuse but to inform? Why write it? Right? Unless, unless you think God is a big killjoy, he just loves to mess with people, you know. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff you can't figure out. If you think that God's that way, some people do, uh, keep studying. God is not that way. He very much wants you to know, he wants you to, why, why would he send his son Jesus to die for you, to bring you into a relationship with him so that he can just mess with you? That's not the way God is. He doesn't want to mess with you, he wants to make you right. You're, you're already messed with. He wants, to, he wants to get you straight. And so, so he's done that. He's inspired the text of Scripture to inform us, not to confuse. Do you believe that only God can truly interpret the Scriptures? Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, nod your head. This is, that's the correct answer. Only God can. If it's just a book, then anybody can do it. Any intellectual, we can study, we can come up with it. But if it is truly inspired by God, then God holds the keys to the understanding of it. Make sense? All right. Here's another question. Do you believe that when a person trusts Christ as personal Savior, that all of God comes to live inside of that person, he or she? Do you believe that? Scripture does teach that. I mean, I'm just asking you questions of whether you believe the Scriptures, really. It does say that. Jesus says, anyone who believes in me, I and the Father will be with them, and we will be in them. That's a very important preposition. In, it says. So it, through the person of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triune God, all of God comes to reside inside of the person, no matter how old they are, 
matter how messed up they are, all of God comes into them because that's where the power is. Our power is not in ourselves trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps to live in better. Our power is by surrendering ourselves to the holy God who is able through his own power to live his life through us. You see a person who's living a godly life and strong and, and makes good decisions, you're, you're looking at a person who's surrendered to a power and a control that only comes through faith in Christ. That's a surrender person. So you believe that the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and the Holy Spirit is all of God, not just part of God. And here's the final question. Do you believe that the Spirit of God, according to the Scriptures, leads us into all truth? Do you believe that? So you're a believer, you believe in God, you believe God inspired the text of Scripture, you believe that he, he wrote it to inform us, not to confuse us. You believe that the Spirit of God resides in every person, if you're one of those who believes in Christ, and you believe that the responsibility, among other things, of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth. But you tell me we can't understand prophecy. No. No, but it's not about intellectual. Give up the intellectual issue. You don't have to have letters after your name. It's a matter of surrender and asking, seeking God. You are the sovereign. You have des- designed this text. You've inspired it. And you're able, I, you're able to teach me what you want me to know about it. From that perspective, you will understand what it has to say. But it doesn't come without sweat equity. He's going to require you. It's not a matter of I, lay, I, I fall asleep on the Bible and I wake up with a bunch of knowledge. It's not by osmosis. You're going to have to put your back into it. Okay. So let's launch into this thing and get our, our bearings about when and where this prophecy comes, because um, we haven't even really talked about it at all yet. Verse 1, chapter 7, just to kind of get our feet on the ground about where this prophecy happens in the tenure of Daniel as he works for some 60, 70 years for these two different governments, the Babylonians and the Persians. Verse 1, it says, In the year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, so that's the first administration, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed, and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So, so we know basically Daniel's around 70 years old. He's in retirement at this point. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the guy who exiled Daniel and his friends, and the guy who they refused to eat his food. Remember that way back in chapter 1? This is his grandson, Belshazzar. Belshazzar doesn't want anything with the administration of Daniel because Daniel keeps going about this God of Israel stuff. Nebuchadnezzar was all about that God. But now his grandson says, we're going to go back to these pagan gods. We're going to sacrifice to them because they're the ones that brought us prosperity and all this stuff. Of course, they were completely wrong. So Daniel's now in retirement. He's around 70 years of age. He's served for 50-some-odd years under Babylon. Uh, This Belshazzar is a wicked dude. He's the same guy in chapter 5. He saw the handwriting on the wall, and he died that night. Remember that story? That's the same guy, Belshazzar. So it kind of tells you where we are in these things. This is not Daniel's first dream to interpret. It is, it is his, his first dream of himself to interpret. He interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. As I showed that graphic up on the screen. Now he's going to get to interpret, start interpreting his own dreams. He has these experiences with God, and God begins to show him things, and he writes these things down, and that's effectively the remainder of the book of Daniel. So we aren't going to be spending a lot of time on this vision, especially since we've covered, like I said, a big part of this, verses 1 through 7, in the previous, previous chapter 2. They're just the same, different symbols talking of the same things. Again, I recommend you that previous sermon. We're going to be looking at the details, nonetheless, of a theme that's within this vision, and a particular theme is the theme of all prophecy. All of it. It's the apex of all prophecy. So whether it's Daniel's prophecy, or it's Joel's prophecy, or Zechariah's prophecy, or the book of Revelation's prophecy, or anywhere else you read prophecy in the Bible, the theme of all those things is one single event, one single issue, and one single person. The theme of prophecy, it is because, because it is the apex of all prophecy, it's also the apex of all the Bible. It's also the apex of all history, since the writer of the Bible, ultimately the mind of the Bible, is God. 
and he's in charge of history. So it's the apex of all things. This event, this person, this, 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 this happening is the apex of all history. And that apex, listen, is the crowning of God's king and the inauguration of his eternal kingdom. That is the apex of all the Bible, all prophecy within the Bible, and ultimately of all human history because God's in charge of all those things. The crowning of God's king is the apex. So somebody might argue, well, no, it's not. It's the crucifixion and resurrection of the king. And I'd say, no, it's not. That is a means to an end. That is a means to an end in which he received all the authority in which he's calling people to trust him as savior. The reason why Jesus died and resurrected is so that we could be saved, right, from our sins. So that we could be with him in what? In his kingdom. Because that's where we're going. That's, that's where this thing is headed, and you're either going to be on the right side or the wrong side of it, and you've got to decide. But that's why he's not inaugurating his kingdom at this point, and not coming with authority, because, because he's given us an opportunity. Because when this kingdom comes, as we're going to see, it's going to come it's like a steel trap. It's going to shut. And so this is the apex of history. It's the apex of, 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 of the Bible. It's the apex of all prophecy. And it is the ultimate reason why Christ died and is rescuing us because it is, everything has been purchased at that point, And he's going to come and take possession of that which is his as king. So we've known him as the virgin-born son of Mary. We've known him as the suffering savior. But he will, listen, be forever known as king. You call him Messiah, do you use that word? The same word in the Greek is Christ. It is a title. It is a title that was given exclusively to Jewish kings. When you call him that, you're already calling him something that he's going to be. It is the apex, like I said, of history and of prophecy. So Daniel 7. Look at verse 13. We're going to skip all the Antichrist and stuff and all that. We'll come back and talk about that later. He's not near as important as the guy we're going to talk about today for sure. Verse 13 and 14 all the Bible, like I said, is aimed at this particular event. All the Bible, all the prophecy, all of history. Verse 13, I kept looking. Remember, he's seeing these visions. He's writing them down. You think you've had a bad dream? You need to talk to Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. In other words, speaking of, he's a human. That's what it's saying. This human. He's not seeing humans up to now. He's seen weird stuff up to now this human is in heaven with clouds not expected to see that was coming it says and he came up to the ancient of days speaking of god the father sitting on his throne and presented there before him and to him was given notice this son of man this human was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion in juxtaposition of all the kingdoms that happened in verses 1 through 7. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, phase 2 of the Romans under the Antichrist. These are temporary kingdoms. The kingdom that is to come and the king that is to come will not be succeeded, will not be conquered, will not go away. Well, not like anything, I mean, the average age of the nations, and we're past our age here in America, is only 200 years. This kingdom doesn't have that characteristic. It's forever. It will not pass away, it says, his kingdom is one, his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is, this event, the inauguration of the king and the beginning of this kingdom is the apex of all prophecy and of the Bible and of history, ultimately. So let's understand some key points about it. First of all, what is this title? Son of of man. Why not give him a name? 
Because the name isn't near as important as the title. The title is the issue. The Christ, the Son of Man, if you will. And by the way, this gives us a great opportunity here. Of course, everybody, you know, who is the Son of Man? We all know the Sunday school lesson. Oh, it's Jesus, right? Well, it is Jesus. But let's, let's, let's learn a lesson about interpreting the Bible, and especially prophecy in particular, by, by applying some rules here. doesn't say Jesus, does it? Say that in your Bible? Capitalize it in mine, which tells me that the interpreters were interpreting it for, for you. It's not actually the way it was written originally. It's written all in lowercase, so you have to guess who the Son of Man is. If, it's written in cap, if it says he in capitals in the Bible, you know it's talking about God or Jesus, right? Well, I write, my, mine anyway... Uh, capitalize it just to give us a hint, hint, hint. This is Jesus. Come on, go with me here. But, but how do we know for sure it's him? It, it gives us, like I said, an opportunity to exercise, uh, which we need to, our understanding of how we interpret the Bible. And this is really important. How you interpret the Bible, there's many different rules in it. Um, there's several main rules, and here's one of the main rules. If the Bible raises a question, like for instance, who is the Son of Man? What does the title mean? That's a question. That answer is in the Bible. Nowhere else. It's not in your Sunday school class. It's not in your favorite preacher. They may have the answer, but if they got it, they got it from the Bible. Okay? It doesn't come anywhere else. It's not in, running around between your ears. God does not consult your brain. He knows better. I hope you do. Maybe you're learning that. Quit consulting your brain. Start consulting him. God does not consult your brain because you don't consult sheep about shepherd stuff, do you? So he, he knows that we don't know, and so when he writes and he makes a question, for instance, who is the Son of Man, he answers that question in the Bible. And, maybe more importantly, or at least as important, if the Bible raises a question that the Bible itself does not answer, there's not an answer. So quit messing with it. Just drop it and move on. If God wanted you to know it, he would have told you, and since he did not tell you, move on. If God hides something from you, can you find it? No. You can't. So, move on. Who is the Son of Man? Well, it is Jesus in, indeed, and we know that because the Bible answers it prolifically in the New Testament. Jesus consistently, constantly is referring to himself in this title, Son of Man, expecting us to know our Old Testament. He's expecting you to know that Daniel has already called him this title. Who is he? He said, I'm the guy. Daniel saw this human being being presented before the throne who's given a dominion and a kingdom that's going to last forever. He gives himself that title saying, I'm that guy. I'm the guy. I'm the man. The Son of Man, like I said, is just simply a title that says you were born of a woman, and Jesus most definitely was. Eighty times or more in the New Testament, though, he calls himself or is referred to as the Son of Man. It is the title of his humility, born to a Jewish girl in a barn. His first bed was a feed trough. That is humble. That's as humble as humanity gets. It is also, at the same time, it is a title of his exaltation. Though he is humble, human, he is also the sovereign God. He never ceased to be that. Jesus has to be, according to the scriptures, both fully human and fully man at the same time. Fully human because if he's only 90% human, that means only 90% dies. That means 10% of us aren't going to heaven. That's bad. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm in the 90. I'm pushing one of y'all out. I'm going. But that's not who he is. Fully human, he could... 100% so he could 100% die for sins. And he's also at the same time fully God. Again, if he's 90% God or 80% God, then you've got a 10% or a 20% problem. That's not who he is. Fully human, fully God, fully died, fully saved. Because only God can save. 
So it's a title both of his humility and of his exaltation. And again, he links himself directly to Daniel chapter 7 multiple times in the New Testament. That's how we know who it is. Specifically, though, he uses this title to refer to his second coming. uses it a lot. Notice what it says here in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, is going to come in his Father's glory. Now, just just simple semantics here. If someone says they're going to come, it implies two things. First of all, that they're coming from somewhere. And they're going to somewhere else. So Jesus is coming from where? Where he is in heaven to where? Back down here. Otherwise he would say he was going to stay or something else. But no, he's coming, right? Notice how straightforward this language is. For the Son of Man, title, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Where? On the earth. Again, Son of Man, truly I say to you that you have followed, you have followed me in the regeneration. Again, that, that inauguration time, that time of, of the return of his kingdom and his, his kingship. When the Son of Man in the regeneration will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit, he's speaking to the twelve apostles, sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, which is an earthly kingdom, right? That's where he's going to sit, that's where they're going to sit. Again, very straightforward. But when the Son of Man comes from where? From heaven to where? To earth. In his glory and all the angels. Every time he says that, it's with the angels, right? Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Where? There's going to be a throne on the earth. There's going to be a solemn, sovereign king over it. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful king, most, most prolific king there was, historically speaking, had no control over, over, over the minds of his people. So you're Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and I'm sitting over here in Jerusalem, and you're a sovereign king, and you control all this, and I'm sitting in my house thinking, you know, he doesn't control what I'm thinking. I can think of whatever I want. I can say, I hate you. What's he going to do? He can't hear me. He can't do that. But this sovereign is not like that. Is there anything that we're saying or thinking today that the sovereign king Jesus does not know about? He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to do before you're going to do it. It's not going to be any different when he gets back. When he comes back, it's going to be the same thing, except he's going to be here physically. Nevertheless, he's going to be the omniscient and omnipresent God. So how's that kingdom going to go? Just like he says, that's how it's going to go. Just like he says. There will not be a single rebel in that group because they will be rooted out. So he's coming. He is sovereign, to be sure. And then the next thing, he comes, as it says here in verse uh, 13, with the clouds. Now, why is that significant? I'm not totally sure, although I do know this. Every time the clouds show up in the Bible, his referencing God, there are always references his presence, his holiness. The presence of God, it says, filled the temple, and it, the temple was filled with a cloud. The presence of God met with Moses in the wilderness. He met with him in a cloud. It's true in the Old Testament. True in the New Testament. For instance, speaking of Jesus in this event in Daniel chapter 7, Revelation. If you want to understand Revelation, Daniel is your pre-course to Revelation. You love Revelation. People like to read the end of the book before they read the rest of it, right? You won't get Revelation. Revelation is pretty tough, isn't it? Daniel, you have to under, he expects you to understand Daniel because here he refers to Daniel as if you already know it. Look, he says, coming with the clouds. Where did he get that from? The Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Every eye will see him. How many eyes do you have? I have two. Every eye will. We'll see him. In his second coming, it will not be like his first. How many saw him? Mary, Joseph, couple sheep, donkey, chicken, shepherds, had to be told. 
And then the wise men had to be shown a lie, and they didn't get there for a couple of years. So nobody else knows he's there. Not true in his second coming. Every eye will see him. People say, Jesus is back. If you had to be told that, you know he's not back, because it says every eye will see him. If one of your eyes misses him, it wasn't Jesus. Every eye will see him, even those referenced to the Jews, even those who pierced him, coming with the clouds. Again, coming with the clouds. We are still alive and are left with, are caught up. This is speaking of our rapture. Caught up together with him, where? In the clouds. Why does he do that? I don't know. I'm just telling you. It's consistent all the way through the scriptures. Expect it. Matthew 24. They will, there will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Again, Jesus saying this, calling himself that title, Son of Man. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see. With how many eyes? Both of them. The Son of Man coming on the clouds, there it is, of heaven with power and with great glory. So he's coming with the clouds. He's coming with great authority, number three. He's coming with great authority. It will not be a democracy. Get used, use up all your votes right now because when he comes, there won't be any more voting. Now, as long as we've got sinful men reigning over sinful people, then we need democracy is about the best you can come up with. But even that, we're apparently messing up. But uh, because that's just what we are, we're mess ups. But the one who's coming with great authority will not be allowing a democracy. It will be 100% absolute monarchy. Like I said, we've never seen that before. Other people have claimed to reign, absolutely. But you can't reign absolutely over the human mind, over the human heart. Like, like you heard the story about the little boy who was caught uh, uh, doing something. So his mom sent him to his room and told him to sit down in the corner. And she hollered back a little while later, Johnny, are you sitting down in there? And he said, yeah, but I'm standing up on the inside, he said. You know, what can you do about that? You can't control the human heart. But the sovereign who's coming can and will. You ever wonder, why doesn't Jesus change and affect things? Because he's wanting people to choose. But there's going to come a day in which there will not be any more choosing. He will reign as sovereign. He will have complete authority. Notice, despite our vote, despite the vote of the world, he's still coming. Here's the vote of the world. The ruler, the kings of the earth, rise up and the rulers band together again. They vote against him. The Lord against his anointed, it says. That's, by the way, that's the word for Jesus, Messiah right there, the word anointed. It's the same word. The one who enthroned in heaven laughs. Like, what are you going to do? Vote me out? The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion. That's an earthly spot, my holy mountain. I don't care how you vote. This is what we're doing. It's what it means to be a sovereign and authority. He's coming. Again, sovereign, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and earth. We don't see him exercising that authority yet because if he did, he'd be getting rid of all the sinners. And he loves sinners. Did you know that? You're a sinner. He loves you. How do we know that? He died for you. Because either you pay for your sins or he paid for your sins. He decided to pay for your sins. That's super good news. So choose him, sinner. Because there is no other way out of it because he's coming a day in which he will not be so, so nice, I guess you could say. He's going to come and exercise this full authority that he has. And the opportunity you have now is to accept him because, like I said, he loves you and he's demonstrated that love by dying for you and me, a sinner. So it's going to be not only with authority, it's going to be a literal kingdom. A lot of people think Jesus' kingdom is all about just all spiritual. Well, I will say because they, it does say that in the New Testament. It does say that the kingdom of God today is spiritual. God is king over my life. I'm allowing Jesus to be king. I want him to be king over me. But it doesn't change my world. My world is still messed up. Still full of sinners. A bunch of stuff going on that God doesn't agree with. Why isn't he exercising his authority as king? Because he's withholding himself. 
But there's going to come a day in which it's going to be not like that anymore. It's not going to be like that. His authority is going to be complete. It's going to be earthly. The context of Daniel 7 is a series of world-dominating kingdoms that literally, physically ruled. Again, the problem people have with Daniel that are not Christians and don't believe the Bible is, Daniel's so accurate. How could it be possible that a person writing beforehand writes so accurate about events that were going to happen yet to be? They have always concluded, well, Daniel must have written years after the fact. And the problem that it is is we have copies of Daniel that exist prior to any of these events. So how did he do it? Well, he didn't. I told you that. God inspired the text. It's singly the most important proof that this is actually the inspired text of God is this fulfilled prophecy. So four Gentile powers that are followed by a fifth permanent power who is ruled by God's king. That's where we're headed. Everything in this prophecy is from the reference point of earth. These are four physical, literal kingdoms with literal kings that ruled in certain places. And the fifth one that is to come that is going to be permanent is going to be the same thing. On the earth, literal, have a home town territory, namely Jerusalem, sit on a throne. But his rule is not going to be like these others. It's going to be absolute and it is fifthly going to be forever. Let's, but again, notice, it's going to say this in Zechariah and many other places. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. The Lord my God will come from where? To where? Yep. And all the holy ones with him. There's back to the angels again. It says that every time. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem because that's going to be his hometown. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. It's not that way today, but it most definitely will be. And ultimately, it will be a reign that is forever. Take a look. Well, we'll just put it on the screen. Daniel chapter 7. It will be a forever kingdom in juxtaposition to these earthly kingdoms that rose and fall. 200 years, 300 years, they're here, they're gone, move on to the next one. This kingdom will not be going away. His dominion, it says, is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. The kingdom forever for all ages to come, it says in verse 18. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, verse 27. In Daniel 7, it just says it over and over again. It's going to last, it's going to last, it's never going to go away, it's never going to stop. So what do we need to get from this? Well, here's what we need to get for this. You need to make sure, because it's inevitability, that you're on the right side of these things. You better make sure. And the shot that you have is your current life and the decisions you're making. You have a right to make decisions today. That right will be taken away from you the moment you pass away. Everything will be sealed up. So if you're on the wrong side of this kingdom, you won't like it. You won't like it, it won't be fun, and it'll be that way forever. So you've got to decide, ultimately, this king who has come, who is coming, is a king who has already come, and he came because he didn't want you to get, he, he doesn't want this kingdom to fall on you. Either, either you, you fall over it and are broken, it says, or it falls on you and it grinds you to powder. It's up to you. Well, I, this whole brokenness thing, I'm not into that. Well, get into it. Because that's what it takes. You've got to become broken before God and say, God, I can't, I can't fix myself. I can't change my life. I, I can't be what, what you want me to be. I can't live up to the standards that, that I'm supposed to live up to. Not even my own, much less yours. Yeah, you're right about all those things. That's why Jesus died. The perfect God for an imperfect person. So it stands today that everyone, it says in the scriptures, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The sovereign king who's going to rule with absolute authority. He already has it all. He's just not exercising it is a king who also offers forgiveness of sins and, and, and being made right with God permanently and forever to all those who call upon him. 
those who call upon the name of the Lord, it says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, they will be saved. Have you called upon the king? I know his name. His name is Jesus. Have you called upon Jesus, the rescuer, the deliverer? Why, why do we call him the savior? Why, why do we call it getting saved? Because man, because what's coming, you need to be saved from. You need to be rescued. You don't know it, but you're out there drowning, and he's throwing you a life preserver, and you're saying, I'm, I'm good. What's wrong with it? We're enjoying the water. No, you don't know what's underneath the water. He does. He's saying, deliver yourselves. Get out of this, get out of this life. Get out of the, the things that trap us. Get out of the sins that have made us the way we are. Get, get out of these things. I'm, I'm a rescuer to you. I hold out a life preserver to you, but you have to accept that it. it's a decision you have to make. Have you accepted? Have you called on the king? I want to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Consider just briefly the things that we've said this morning. Have you called on this king? See, it's not about a religious thing. We're not talking about, okay, I, I go to church and I read the Bible and I pray. No, we're talking about a relationship with a real person. A real person who is the king of everyone who trusts him today. And he's going to be the king of everyone, whether they like it or not, someday. But today we have the option for him to be king over us. And as king, he becomes, he becomes our rescuer. He becomes our savior. He's not our enemy. He's not our foe. He's the one who, who loves us. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not, it says, it says, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, God doesn't want you to get what you deserve God doesn't want you to be in a ground of powder by this kingdom that he's going to impose. Instead, he wants you to be a willing part of it today. Scripture says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Like I said, I already told you his name. His name is Jesus. Have you called upon him? A heart knows that desires that, knows how to call out to him. So let your heart speak to him today. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a rescuer of the broken and the lost of the sinners, God, of those who are destitute. And we're all that, God, we just may not think we're that. We so need to understand how much out of control of life we really are and how much you are the sovereign. Sovereign today over every heart that willingly submits themselves to you. Sovereign someday of all that there is. We look forward to that day, God. We trust you. We believe your word. We thank you for informing us. Thank you for teaching us, God, not confusing us, but, but teaching us the truth. We lift all these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.